tell you a little bit about myself, confessions from the pulpit. When I was a child, a boy, I was a liar, which is different than a child who lies. A liar makes a trade of it. I was a liar. Uh, you know, I think about it because we discipline our kids pretty harshly over lying, and I just think, man, I would have been not good. I was a liar. I lied, and a lot. I don't even think my parents. My parents are smart. They must have known. But, but actually, um, it was in HB Middle School. A friend at lunch called me out, and it changed my life. Doug Sweet, uh, sitting in lunch, and he said, "You're just. You're a liar. You're always lying. I never forget that. Because I was lying." Uh, but, you know, it reminds me of how much, how meaningful peer, a word from your peer matters. You know, just say that. At, I was in sixth grade, so all ages, you know, sometimes peers, friends can say things family can't. And it mattered to me. It changed me. I remember that day, and I remember thinking, I am a liar. But that's not the point. It is the point. What I'm trying to say is, is I was a liar and I didn't like school because school had two things I didn't like at the time. It had books and it had numbers. And I didn't understand. I was frustrated. I wasn't doing well. We moved from Virginia to Delaware. I did not adjust at all with the move. And so I would think of ways to be sick. And the best way to stay home sick is to be kind of sick because then you can make it look legit. So I celebrated the common cold because I would make it look uncommon <laughs> and to try to stay home. And I would always give my, uh, my mom a reason and the reason was I'm sick, but that really wasn't the reason. The reason was I was avoiding school. I did not like school. I didn't like to learn. I didn't like to read. I did not like numbers. This is all strange because I love numbers and I love to read now. But I, and so I would make the, my common cold the pretense of, I would use that as the reason. But if my parents could see through it, they would have seen that that's not really the reason. That's just what I'm saying is the reason. And this morning in the scriptures, we're going to see uh, this sort of thing happening. We're going to see uh, God's people, right? This morning's sermon is about people who claim to be the people of God, okay? So we're not talking about people who are not here today. We're talking about people who are gathered in houses like this all around the world today. It's about these people giving the Lord a reason that's not really the reason, and the Lord ferreting out what really is at the root of what they're asking, and they're going to ask today for a king. Now, we need to remind ourselves, it's not like they don't have a king. God is their king. He is the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. In heaven is a throne room. When Christ walks the earth, he talks about the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. He's the prince of peace. So it isn't as though the people don't have a king, but rather they're asking for an earthly king, which is a new idea. In our study, 
our study for these next four or five weeks is going to be on the first king. His name is King Saul. So at one level, we're going to be looking at the story of a man. The man's name is Saul, and we're going to be exploring that. At another level and at a deeper level, we're looking at a time of transition or a reality among the Hebrew people, which is they are tired of that king and they want a, they want a human king. And all that comes up in that, in that idea. And so let me lay out, let me give you a little bit of background as far as um, where they're coming from as we, before we, we really pick up and begin to read. Prior to this morning in 1 Samuel 8, prior to them saying, give us a king, Israel was ruled in a very, very decentralized way. Each, you didn't gather. So today we're going to see the elders of all Israel gathered. They haven't done that since Moses. So there's like 350-some years between almost three centuries, three or four centuries between the last time they gathered as a people, okay? What, you know, for like an administrative magisterial purpose. By and large, almost entirely, life in Israel during this period of time was lived out in your town. You lived it in your town. And each town had priests. They were to set priests for the towns and judges for the towns. That's what it says in Deuteronomy, is go to the towns, appoint priests and judges. And the judge would kind of deal with the horizontal aspect of culture, justice between one another, and the priests would deal with the vertical aspect of man and God. And in the book of Judges, the Lord begins to outline for us uh, how this all worked. He says when, when Joshua died and the generation uh, that followed Joshua, those people who took the promised land by force, and settled in it. He says, after they died, generation rose up that neither knew the Lord nor remembered what he had done for them. And there's this tag phrase that's in, in Judges. It says that everybody began to do as their hearts desired, as what seemed right to them. And there's a cycle, and we've talked about this before, but there's a cycle in Judges, and this is what would happen. The Lord was obviously concerned about that because they were falling away from the promises they had made the Lord. And so when the people began to rebel and follow other idols and, and follow their own way, the Lord would raise up around them a neighbor, a hostile neighbor, the, Philist, the Philistines, the Amalekites, the Ammonites. You pick them, the Hittites, all the ites. He would raise these ites up, and they would be a spur, a kind of a thorn in the side of the Israelites. The Israelites would then, this was the goal, they would return to the Lord and repent and realize oh, the reason this is happening is because we're not being faithful. It says, then the Lord would raise up a judge, a mighty judge who would rally the people. And typically these judges were regional. They would rally their people in their region and um, gain, throw off the yoke of one of these other tribes. And then there'd be peace. And then the judge would die and guess what would happen? They would forget the Lord. They would not remember what he had done. They would turn to their wicked ways. Then the Lord would raise up a people and then they would cry out and repent and the Lord would raise up a judge and the judge would help them towards freedom and then the judge would die and the cycle would continue on and on and on and on. And the book of Judges shows you not only did the cycle happen, but it happened on the way down. So each, each time around, it gets more cumbersome. And finally, at last, we arrive at Samuel, who is, he has sons, they don't really count. Samuel is essentially the last 
judge. And this is to whom the people go when Samuel gets old. Look with me here, 1 Samuel chapter 8. I'll just read uh, five verses. It says this. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. Appoint us a king to judge us like all the nations is their request. Now, like all the nations, we'll get to that in a second. That is, if you know anything about the story of of God and his people, God was trying to make a people that were not like all the nations. We'd say if the theme verse of Judges is everybody did what seemed right in their own mind, the theme verse kind of behind the kings is like all the nations. I mean, it, that, this is a big red warning sign. of Something's going wrong here. They're going to give a reason. They just gave a reason as to why they want a king. But this, like all the nations, betrays the reason a little bit. And we'll get to that in a second. But let's just look at what the people said the reason was. They said, give us a king because, Samuel, you are old. And your sons are inadequate. Now that's the reason they gave, right? That's, that's, I'm going to say, that's not the reason. It's the reason they gave, is that Samuel is old and his sons are unqualified. Another way of saying this is, Samuel, give us a king because God's instituted government is broken. Your government has failed. God's design is inadequate. That's another way of looking at this. Is the people are going to Samuel, God's appointed judge, and they're saying, what God has instituted for us is just not working. So what we want to do is adopt what the rest of the world is doing because it seems like it's working great for them. God's government is not enough, it's flawed, it's obsolete, it's outdated, and it's unfaithful. Uh, Do you hear the church in this? I mean, you you have to see the plight of the church in this. How many people have left the church because it's old or unfaithful? Especially in this area where the church is old. I mean, the church sometimes gets hollow and stale, rote, or it gets wicked. 
It perverts justice, takes advantage of people. Now remember, this, this, this story is not about people who are not in the church. It's about people who are the people of God. Presumably, they're card-carrying members of the kingdom who are frustrated with the church, with the, govern, the government of God. I mean, when I read this, it makes me pray, like, Lord, may we never become an excuse. Now, not that this is the real reason, okay? So this is not the real reason, but is this, God, help us never make godless alternatives look attractive. You know? And by, it doesn't just fall on me, though these sorts of passages weigh heavy on a pastor, but we are a kingdom of priests, right? I'm not a priest. We are a kingdom of priests, so we, co- we collectively uh, bear this burden of not becoming lifelessly old or inadequate. But I don't want to waste too much time here because to be here for too much time would be a waste because it's not the reason. Here's the reason. Look at 6 through 9. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice only. You shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel hears this request, and you, you can tell he takes it personally, which is understandable, because the people, they gather, and they go to the judge, the judge, and they say to the judge, they start off with, you're old, okay? You can see why this goes personal. You're old and your sons are losers. Samuel, judge. So can you give us a king to judge us? That's what they say. And Samuel obviously walks away dejected, and the Lord says, listen, Samuel, you don't take it personal because it's actually divinely personal. You're the middleman, Samuel, you're the excuse, but the real reason is they're rejecting me. That's, that's what the Lord's saying. In fact, the Lord says, well, the Lord is saying they're rejecting my kingship. That's the real issue that's before him, is that the people of Israel are rejecting the kingship of God. Some of you may be wondering, well, how do you see, I mean, obviously I see it because it says it, but how do we get there from here? How do we see, how does asking for a king equal rejecting God? Well, this is, this is what God says. He says, this is the first thing. He says, ever since I saved them, they've been doing this. Did you see when he said that? Since the day I brought them out of, out of Egypt? The Lord says to Samuel, look, they're rejecting you. I know they're, don't worry, Samuel, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me, excuse me, is what he's saying. In fact, he says, in fact, they've always been doing this. Since the first day I made them my people, since day one of year one, they've been doing this to me. 
They have been choosing to go to other, pe- other gods and idols to worship instead of me. So Samuel, it's not you. That's, we, we know that is the case. And what they're actually doing here, this is, God is essentially saying to Samuel, they're rejecting my jurisdiction in their affairs of life. That's what's happening. Is the Hebrew people have problems. They have problems on every border. They have Philistines and Amalekites and Ammonites all around them that are exerting pressure. In the next four chapters, there will be a battle with the Philistines, a battle with the Amalekites, and a battle with the Ammonites. So they feel this pressure around them, but they are no longer content to go to the Lord for the solution. They're saying, can we just get our own king and deal with it our way? Samuel, can we just do that? Why? here's, Here's the thought. The thought is that hardship, our knee-jerk, our knee-jerk reaction as people, our knee-jerk reaction to all hardship or pain is a few feelings. One is eliminating, taking pain management becomes, is our knee-jerk reaction is pain management. Something hurts, we don't want it to hurt. There's no question of what's the purpose. There's no question of what's the value in the pain. There's no question of what God's trying to do. Our knee-jerk, you know, when the hammer hits the knee, when we deal with pain, we want to we want to eliminate pain in our life. Hardship is purposeless; is our starting position in life. Likewise, obstacles that are in our way are the problem to be dealt with. There's not dis, there's no notion. I mean, the the only way we can begin to believe that God is using. Hardship in our lives to grow us is through a life of faith because it's not our knee-jerk position. Whenever something's hard is happening, the first thing that comes to our mind is how do we fix the problem? The problem with this is God is not that, God is not practical in the way that you and I think of as practical. In other words, the problem is not to God the problem. The Philistines aren't the problem to the Lord. In fact, the Lord raised up the Philistines. To the Lord, the Philistines are an act of mercy to turn the people back to him. Why in the world would he get rid of the Philistines without repentance? They see hardship as judgment. God is using hardship as mercy to avoid judgment. So what happens is when God allows hardship into the life of his people, our knee-jerk reaction is to eliminate the pain, is to get rid of the pain. But the Lord's saying, wait, don't get rid of the pain. The pain is there to transform you into something else. The pain is there because the true problem, Philistines aren't a problem. The Lord could wave his hand and there'd be no Philistines. We would not even know the word Philistines if the Lord didn't want Philistines. Philistines aren't the problem. The problem is there's something deeper in our soul that the Lord's trying to get to, and he can't get to it unless there's some pain in our life, some hardship in our life. This is why long-suffering is a fruit of the Spirit. The Lord has to excavate out what's wrong. This is, by the way, where Satan makes most of his money. Satan is very pragmatic. 
So when there's pain in our lives and we want to get rid of the pain, well, the Lord's answer is, I'm working on something deeper you can't even see, which is not satisfactory to us. But Satan's answer is, you tell me the pain and I'll take care of it. The promise of all idolatry is that it will work on the problem you have in mind without dealing with your soul. That's what's happening in idolatry. When we embrace things in idolatry to deal with a felt need or a personal pain and to avoid allowing the Lord to go deep and work on something that we don't really know is there or we don't really know what's happening. There's something's in our life that's pushing on us or weighing on us and we don't like that feeling and the Lord's saying, I'm using this to drill deep. But we, in fact, are tempted to embrace idols around us because they promise to deal with the pain. They will medicate the problem. This is what we see, the cycle of judges. There's wickedness. The Lord raises up a problem. The problem causes repentance, or the, the repentance brings freedom. There's wickedness. God raises up a problem. The problem breeds confession and repentance, and the repentance brings freedom. That is that is the cycle. That's the spiritual cycle of life. Consider it pure joy, my brethren, when you experience hardships of many tribulations of many kinds. God's growing you. Here's a, in the church, this is how it sounds. Uh, the fix-it culture. Uh, ministries that deal with felt needs. When people just want ministries that are dealing with their topical felt need. This is a sign that you're not, that you're just responding to pain. Three-point topical sermons. Three steps to praying better. Three steps to a happy marriage. I'll give you four steps to raising kids that spell kids. Okay, I'll make it an acrostic, and that'll really do something for you. Right? Six steps for that, two steps for that, one step for that, three steps for that. All of these step programs that promise, this, this promise they make, this is what idolatry in the house of God looks like, is to say that the Bible was written for you to deal with your pain. Just the surface level pain. So you do these three steps and you can make that pain go away. The reality is, is God is trying to drill deep. Do we really think that our marriage or our family can be reduced to three simple steps? This is at the heart of a lot of medication. Now, I know there's, I'm opening a can here. I don't, I'm not judging, diagnosing, or assessing. But it would be wrong not to brush this close up to it and just say, what is the epidemic in our culture? How many ill-behaved children have been diagnosed with ADHD? And how much pain is being drugged? Soul pain that God wants to work with. God loves you. That bottle does not love you. God loves you. And he wants to go where you will not let him and fix what you don't even admit is wrong. 
And we turn to these things. Again, I'm not... I believe in medication. I think there's a role and a place. Please trust, I don't have a judging spirit here except to look at our culture and say, what is wrong? We naturally orient around felt pain. How often is the work so much deeper? I'll give you an example. So, um, how do I say this? My wife is watching Downton Abbey. I sometimes sit with her just to be a good husband. Usually I'm sharpening knives and hunting grizzlies, but when I sit with her to watch Downton Abbey, uh, and by the way, don't tell us we're in the middle of season three. Can't wait to get home tonight. Uh, in the beginning, in the opening credits of Downton Abbey, there is uh, the little scene of a servant bell ringing in the downstairs. It's this little bronze coily bell that rings. And if you, you know, if you ever saw Cinderella, you know, rich people have the rope. They pull and mysteriously way down in the dungeon, the bell goes ding, ling, ling, and that means get up here, I need something. I want you to imagine that you were given a rope to pull. And any problem you had, you could pull it and the problem would go away. But the Lord would say to you, here's the rope, you can pull it, but I just want you to know, I give you my word that the problem is here because I love you and because there's something that you don't even know in you that only it will pull out. How long would you go? before you pulled the rope. This is what I see. Uh, seven years now I've been doing this, so I, I got a, just enough under my belt that some things are starting to look standard. This is one. Somebody loses a job. Okay. Loses a spouse. Some hardship. Okay. And what will happen is there's obviously the first initial crisis because the knee jerk is pain management. Okay, then after you get over the hump of pain management and we remind, like the Lord reminds us we're spiritual and he's there, then there is this profound statement that comes, which is something like this. I know the Lord wants to show me something in this and I'm ready, like I know he's good. There's these wonderful faith conversations that, that I get to have in month one of the problem. Like I'm memorizing scripture. Um, it's all good. Okay, so I don't even want to character, make it a caricature because it's good and it's noble and it's right and it's, it's, but it is step one on the path. So in month two, you meet with the person and they have all these lessons about themselves that they've learned. I've learned this and I've learned that and I've learned this and I've learned that. Why have they learned all these lessons? Because they are ready for the problem to leave. So you have a crisis and then you, oh, God hasn't left me, right? The gospel sinks in. There's reality. Okay, God, and you embrace the gospel. I'm here to learn. I know you want to grow me. I know you want to grow me. Okay, I'm selfish. I'm thoughtless. And I say mean things. Yes! And you grab the rope and you pull on the rope. And nothing happens. Because the rope is just an, it was a fictional example. There really isn't a rope, right? Why would God give us a rope for crying out loud? So we pull, we're like, Lord, we learned our lesson. The reality, so the truth is, I mean, frustratingly so, the Lord is not going to teach. If you're out of a job, so often the Lord waits till the ninth month to teach you. 
Like, you don't know what broken is. Especially, I think, men. Like, the Lord says, no, no, it's deep. So month two, uh, we haven't even hit rock yet. I'm going to take you deep. But Satan will minister to our felt needs immediately. That's what the people are saying. Give us something like the other nations. That's what they want. Give us a king. And this, the king in our mind, they're thinking, will fight for the things that we want. The king will deal with the things that annoy us now. The king will not deal with the question of repentance. In other words, they're saying the, Philist- the problem with the Philistines is not their unrighteousness and their unrepentance and their wickedness. The problem with the Philistines is they don't have a good three-step program to deal with the Philistines. But a king, that would do it. So the Lord says, give him a king. Give him a king. But Samuel, I want you to tell them, warn them, about what a king will do. And so he does. Let's read chapter uh, 8, 10 through 20. If you are addiction prone, you are gifted here to make the quick jump. But when, if you're not, as he talks about a king, I want you to think of idolatry. Okay? Verse 10, so Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and to some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and and to make implements of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks, and you shall be his slaves. And in that day, you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourself, yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. God says to Samuel, go warn them of the cost of leaving me. Here's the reality. Anything less than God is simply an exchange of slavery. Any attempt in life to claim victory without God is idolatry, and any, anything less than God is an exchange of slavery. When, we're, when we have a problem, and we're trying to deal with that problem without bringing the Lord into it, we're simply exchanging one, one act of slavery for another act of slavery. When we feel oppressed here, and we go here and not there, we're simply exchanging. And what I mean to say is, is that's why it feels good for a moment. It's because when this arm is tired, you put the weight in this arm, and you're like, ah, I solved the problem. You didn't solve the problem. You're still carrying it. Just give yourself a little time. 
This is just, this is the truth about idolatry. It's, it's voluntary at first, and it is an unfamiliar experience. It may even feel good for a while, but it will cost you more than you intended to pay. It will yield less than you had hoped for, and it will linger and fester far longer than you planned. This is what he's saying. He's saying, you want to deal with the problem apart from me? You want, you, you want to just deal with, with the inch-deep surface-level problems around you that I've been using to try to get to a deep issue in your life, but you just want to solve those problems by going to something other than me? You want to reject my jurisdiction in your life? You want to reject my lordship as your God? It will enslave you, and you'll come to me when you are enslaved, and I'll say, I told you so. It's essentially what the Lord said. Anything less than God is an exchange of one problem for another. This is the promise of idolatry. Idolatry promises to fight our battles for us. Let me read this last section, okay? There's a no in this text that is just so, it hurts to read. Let me read 19 through the end of the chapter. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they, answered, they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we, may, uh, that we also may be like the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out for us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them to the ears of the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice, make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. Here's the question for us. Do we want a king who will fight our battles or do we want a king who will fight for us? That's what sits. That's what Christ offers. Christ is a king who fights for us. Everything else is something that will just fight your battle. In John 18 and 19, uh, it was the no here, this strong no. It, just, it, it was almost like a button I pushed, and I ended up in John 18 and 19, where Christ is brought before Pontius Pilate. And he's brought to Pontius Pilate under the accusation that he's claiming to be the king of the Jews. And it is this, it is this it's 1 Samuel 8 kind of being exposed and resurrected a thousand years later. But in it, Pontius Pilate is like, are you a king? And Jesus says, are you saying I'm a king? <laughs> he doesn't give Pontius the upper hand, but finally Pontius Pilate says, so you are a king, so you are saying you're a king. And Jesus says, I am a king, but I'm not a king of this world. This is not, I'm not the kind of king you think I am. Right? It's exposing the different kind of kingdoms that are available to us as people. We're responding to one of two kingdoms. And at the very end, right, because Pontius takes him out and says, I, know, I find no cause of judgment for this man. And the Hebrews say, take him back. Here, I'll give him back to you. And, they, and, and No, you, we want Barabbas. So he whips him, taunts him, mocks him. He still says, I have no charge. And they say, no, we have no king but Caesar. 
This is Christ, the king of the Jews. And they say, no, give us Caesar. So I want to ask, as we dive in, next Sunday and the Sundays, we're going to be dealing with the man God gives them and with the reality of how God works in our poor decisions to still show himself and to still show his love. God does not abandon the people. In fact, he takes this kingship and reveals Christ through it. So God is good in all of this. My question this morning for you is, in your problems, with the pain in your life, are you looking for a king who fights for you Are you looking for a king who fights your battle? Let's pray.